Welcome to On The Square, a special podcast brought to you by Sapelo Square in collaboration with The Maidan. I am Dr. Saad Abdul-Khabir, Senior Editor of Sapelo Square and Curator Producer of this podcast where every month we get on the square and into some real talk about race and Islam in the Americas. So I found this letter in my grandma's basement. It's to one of Umi's best friends, Violet. It talks about a lot of things. Girlfriend things, like moving in with her boyfriend and a pregnancy scare, and revolutionary things. And this last part, which she titles Appendix Number Two, she talks about Dick Gregory's lecture to her campus. And I shaded Dick Gregory, who is hilarious, in the third person, even 40 years after the fact. Assalamu alaikum. I am Zahir Ali, Sapelo Square's history editor. What you've just heard is a brief excerpt from a performance piece that is part of UMI's archive by On the Square's very own curator and producer and Sapelo Square senior editor, Dr. Suad Abdul Kabir. She joins us on this episode to talk about UMI's archive, the importance of Black Muslim women's material culture, and the histories they tell. Dr. Suad is a scholar, artist, activist, the author of Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States, and is currently an Associate Professor of American Culture and Arab and Muslim American Studies at the University of Michigan. Suad, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the square. All right, let's get down to it. So tell us about Umi's archive and the inspiration behind it. For those who don't know, Umi is Arabic for my mother. And in a lot of Black Muslim communities, that's how people refer to their mother, sort of like an alternative for mommy. And so Umi is what I call my mother. My mother um, was Amina Amatul Haq. Uh, she was born Audrey Weeks um, in Harlem, New York in 1950. And in October of 2017, she passed away suddenly. And before my mother had passed away, my mother was the kind of person who lived an interesting life, but she didn't sort of sit you down and say, hey, listen, here's my story, right? It'd be more like one time we're just driving in the car or something, and she's just telling me how she took her shahada at a prison, and she wasn't an inmate, and then the person who gave her shahada was one of Malcolm X's right-hand men. You know, just kind of randomly, just driving in the car. That type of stuff would happen. I say that to say that before she passed away, I had started begin to talk to her, right, a little bit, and I did like one, at least one sort of oral history kind of maybe video. I had gotten a camera. But then after she passed, and she passed five months after my grandmother passed, her mother passed. And so when that all happened, you know, I'm the oldest of my mother's children. And so I just found myself, one, just in a kind of logistical situation where there's a lot of stuff that has to be cleaned out, sorted through, just to kind of deal with the aftermath of what that means and like what death means. And in the process of doing that, the stories my mother used to tell me, things she would casually mention, I would kind of begin to see connections through things I was finding in her things, in her things, in her parents' things, in her brother's things. She died on a Monday. On that Sunday, she had went to her Arabic class. When I'm in the archive and going through her things, I found a receipt from 1977 for like, maybe it was $3 or $9 for an Arabic class that she was taking at 72nd Street. Now they call it, I think they still call it 72nd Street. There's a masjid on 72nd Street in Manhattan. And the sister, I think her name was Fatima Naguib. 
So she had the receipt for her paying for her Arabic class in 1977, right? And she became Muslim in 1975. You know, so the connection was made, right? It was like, you know, the way in which she was sort of taking Arabic then in 2017, and she was also taking Arabic in 1977. And that for me was important to find just her own continuity, but also just what Arabic language and Arabic language proficiency, you know, learning how to speak Arabic, you know, what all those things mean to us as Muslims and as Black people. And even the, in the institutions like 72nd Street, like if you're from New York, it makes, it makes more sense to you, right? Right? Yeah, right. 72nd Street was the first location of the Islamic Center in New York City, which then opened up a subsequent more central, a larger, in a larger, larger space. On 96th and 3rd. Yeah, the east side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the 72nd was 72nd and Riverside. And, and this is a historic uh, location. This is where Malcolm started getting his lessons before he made Hajj. So, and it was the Islamic center for many, many, many years. Yeah. So, yeah. So those are the kinds of things that sort of started happening. So there was this thing that I would find something that was very specific to my mother and her experience and her life trajectory, but it would immediately make me think of her peers and then the histories that they're embedded in and the histories they created. Like that immediately happened all the time. Once that happened, I was like, okay, this is something that I need to figure out how to share with other people because other people are gonna be connected to this, right? They're gonna have their own receipt. <laughs> you know, from a class, um, they're going to have pieces that I don't have that are going to help me understand better, have a clearer picture. And then there are going to be people who don't know anything about this and who need to. And so that's kind of how I got inspired to start the project. That's so amazing. And I don't want to be like, you're such a history anthropology nerd. There's a difference between a memento and an artifact, and they could be the mm. very same object, but it's how we view the object. And looking at some of the objects that you have, I immediately thought back to Sapelo Square's Black History Month feature in this year in 2021, where we highlighted every day a different object from the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture that helps tell the histories of Muslims. And you know, some of the stuff is what you would expect, right? Like religious artifacts, but some of the stuff was like a flyer or a music instrument or a, an egg carton box. <laughs> and so when I saw the objects, some of the objects in Umi's archive, I immediately began thinking about the importance of material culture and how material objects can be containers and signifiers of our histories, our culture, our politics. And you sort of instinctively went there, right? Um, you, I'm sure there was a, a period of time where you're going through these objects and, and it's a deep, deep personal, emotional reaction. And then the intellectual side kicks in and is just like, oh, these are stories. And as you said, connected to people and other histories. So what were some of the objects, if you can give people a sense of the range of objects that you thought at, that helped you reach that kind of conclusion about their power? So as an anthropologist, I, I do think that, you know, one of the things that, that defines, I guess, anthropology as a form of study or as a form of trying to learn in a form of knowledge is paying attention to the small things and the everyday things, right? Everyday life is very important. Like even the method, right? Of so sort of this qualitative research is, you know, you just kind of, you spend time with people and you're just paying attention to the small things. 
because the small things matter and the small things create the fullness. You know, I think oftentimes we think of things have to be big and extraordinary to matter. And in fact, it's not, that's not the case. Extraordinary things actually obviously do happen, but they don't happen without the ordinary things, right? So they're always connected. And so for me, and too, even too, I don't think it was sort of like I was having an emotional and then the intellect kicked in. I actually don't think it was that kind of process. It's more like, you know, my mother, myself, the way I was raised, I guess I already knew that our history is important and it matters because I know I can't go to school and learn about it, <laughs> right? Like there's this way in which, you know, I was raised to understand that, you know, there's a concerted effort to keep us to not know who we are, not know what we've done so that we can't plan for the future and we can't build new things. So it wasn't so much that I was like, oh yeah, I can do this too. I think those things were very much really intertwined. So I really can't separate them out, which, you know, which makes the project both exciting and challenging, right? Because it is also very personal and like, it is my mother and like, you know, like, and losing your mother is like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. So it's not like that's not there, but at the same time, who she was, where she came from and that legacy is what sustained me in the first place, right? So there's the kind of like, so anyway, those things kind of come together. In terms of a range of items, I mean, really it is a range of things that are there. You had me thinking about, just going back to the 72nd Street example quickly, in that same sort of pile of things that were sort of together was a calendar, a fold out calendar of the prayer times from 1977, from 72nd Street. And there's also a cassette tape of the recording of, so there was a brother, they called him Dr. Dunya, Suleiman Dunya, who was from Egypt, a Maliki fiqh scholar who studied at Azhar and came to the United States. My mother's really good friend and mentor, Kareem Abdul Kareem, she was older, a little bit older than my mother, right? So she was kind of like, you know, she, they both were friends, but she also kind of, you know, you know, sort of as she, as my mother was learning how to be Muslim. So anyway, Auntie Karima was what I call her, told Dr. Dunya, we want a class. Right. We want a sister's class. Oh, we're in a class, really. And he ended up doing class for the sisters. So that I have some recordings from that class from the late seventies. And so one of the recordings is him talking about, um, Nisul Shaban, the middle of Shaban and the, and the merits of that. Right. And Ramadan. And then I have this, the fold out of the, the prayer times for Ramadan. Right. So those two things are kind of coming together. And that's important to me because having those two pieces of material culture, right. This kind of paper calendar. And this cassette tape, which has written on it, the date and the time and this, and then also the actual audio of it helps me sort of be able to imagine what it might have been like in like 1976 to be a new Muslim and to be learning all these things. So there's stuff like that. There's things like buttons from when Jesse Jackson was running for president. <laughs> there's that, that's in the collection. There are lots of photos and I, I, since I'm not a historian by training, I don't know if a lot is really a lot. Maybe it's not a lot, but for me, it's a lot. <laughs> so like, for example, I'm um, in the very first exhibition. There's a um, collection called Servicemen. There's about 50 photos in that collection, but that comes out of about almost 500 photos that my mother's father, Aubrey J. Weeks, when he served in the military in World War II from his time in World War II, and he was in what they call the Forgotten Theater of War, um, was China, India, Burma. Um, so he spent time in Iran. He spent time in what was then India, but is now Pakistan and India, as well as Burma, right? So there are all these photos from that. And, you know, and also in his collection too, there are some other photos that will show up later 
probably in the last exhibition from the late 20s in Harlem and because he grew up in Harlem he was born in Harlem grew up in Harlem so like so there's a lot of photos there's like flyers there's this oh I found which I had no idea so I find my, my mother she was an educator and she was educated lots of books right one of the books that I found was um, Angela Davis's Woman, Race, and Class. And so I'm like, look at the book. I'm like, that's cool. And I open it. And I'm like, who signed this book? You know, I'm looking at I'm like, who signed this? And I'm like, oh, that's Angela Y. Davis, right? So it's like a first edition copy of Angela that's Davis's so book awesome. dedicated to Amina, right? So it's that's a, so I mean, so, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So those are the kinds of things from books, papers, some clothes to... So it's a, it's a really wide range of stuff. In curating this stuff, this is this is a hard hard decision. <laughs> How did you decide what to include in the presentation and what not? Like, did you go by like this is representative, or did you go by things that you that could speak to each other? The way you talked about the the tape and the cassette tape and the calendar. How does this come together? Because I want to dive into a particular object, but before we do that, since we've already got a breadth of the materials, tell us about your organization, because I know you've, you've thought about these in terms of themes. How did those themes come to you? So I think there are two levels to this. So there's a logistic level of, you know, I had to clean out some places, you know, I had to clean out some rooms and I had to sort of make some decisions. And so it's funny, I actually was reading, um, there's a book called How We Get Free which is the edited volume by um, Kianga Taylor. And she interviewed Barbara Smith, who was part of the Kumbahi Collective. And in the interview, Barbara Smith was talking about how when they would have these retreats, they would have these literature tables and they would have, they would just make copies of stuff because you couldn't get it. You know, you make copies of and, and I was like, and it immediately took me to Omi's archive because my mother had duplicates of like everything. <laughs> Right, and so part of that I know is because that is that is the practice, right? You find something good and important, you get enough copies of it so you can share it to other people. Like that is the way that that's and that's that's how you organize, that's how you educate, that's what you do. I say that to say that on some level, if there was multiple duplicates of something, then I would just keep one, and that was one way to sort of kind of just make the volume less. In terms of exhibition, so I have six themes, and the themes for me, I chose them based on what I thought really spoke to my mother and her generation in the broad sense, right? That could really kind of touch on these different points as well as in relationship to the, what, what's going on right now. So the first thing, so we launched April 4th, the first thing was why in this archive? And that was really thinking about the question of power in archives and in our stories. We'll talk about the letter and Dick Gregory, but that kind of talks about who, but basically who gets the right to tell the story? Who becomes authoritative? The second theme is Amatola, and this is focusing on the spiritual lives of Black Muslim women. And, and my mother becoming a Muslim was significant, right? It was like one of the most significant, probably the most significant thing that ever happened in her life. And it was a choice that she made. And then, and I wanted, so I wanted to focus on that. And I wanted to focus on the kind of world building and the kind of spirit, through spirituality that these, my mother and her friends and these women, all these women that I was raised around, what they did. So I wanted to focus on that, I thought that was really central. Likewise, so there is the powerful, spiritual, intentional narrative of Black Muslim women. And then there's an, also an intimate and sometimes painful narrative of Black Muslim women. And that was also significant to my mother's life. And so that's why I wanted to do the next thing was Al-Mujadila. 
al-Mujadilah is a, is a chapter in the Quran called The Woman Who Pleads. And so I wanted to use that to talk about love and motherhood, but also heartbreak and then the sisterhood. The next theme is Re'usi Tutashinda Bilashaka, which is Swahili for um, Black people we will win without doubt. And I got the terms because during my mother's college years, you know, she was part of the Black Power movement of the time. She was a student activist. She had joined the Black Panther Party. She was a Pan-Africanist. So she was learning Swahili. So in her correspondence with people, she's using like Swahili, you know, as the greeting and the closing, right? And so there, and she also spent a lot of a significant time doing West African dance. And so there, I want to focus on that. And then Black August, August is Black August. And so I want to talk about Black Power and its legacies in her life both as our time as activists in college, but also post and the ways her, her activism continued after that. And then the final theme, I'm calling it distant relatives with a question mark. And I'm interested in talking about diaspora, Black ethnicity and Black freedom, because my mother is the granddaughter of Caribbean immigrants to the United States. I'm going to pause and I'm going to just kind of go back over that really quickly because I want to say something about time. I chose the themes based on time. So why Umi's archive is in April. April 4th is her mother's birthday. This is how we're opening it. Amantala, we're launching that on May 8th, towards the end of Ramadan. And so that's the spiritual lives. Al-Mujadila is on June 12th. I was born on June 10th. So that's where that story comes in. July 4th weekend every year in Brooklyn is the African Street Festival. It used to call it the East. That's why I chose to do the theme on the Black consciousness, Black dance, and Black identity. Like I said, August is Black August. And then September 4th weekend or Labor Day weekend is when we traditionally for many, many years I have had the West Indian Day Parade. And so to talk about distant relatives for me is important because I think there is a way in which the relationship between Black people in this diaspora and particularly in the United States is being completely dehistoricized and the connections between Black people who were enslaved in different places, right? But now we're all in the United States, I think it's not actually being told the way it should. And so my mother's story is of a granddaughter of these immigrants. And she's also someone who inter integrated her junior high school. She's also someone who like fought for Black studies on her campus, right? So there's a way we think about who is Black and who is not, you know what I mean? That doesn't, that she would just be lost completely alongside with other people like Harry Belafonte or something. <laughs> I mean, I just love the poetics of this, the the themes, how they speak to both your mother's chronology and the contemporary chronology. There's this very wonderful interplay of time and themes, and you couldn't have gotten it any better. Like you, I, I don't know if it's like serendipity, you left out and these things spoke to you or you impose it however it happened the poetics of it is just really really amazing and in the kinds of the ways that it helps you and the viewers or the audience or the mm -hmm. the people who will be engaging this material helps them wrap themselves around it mm -hmm. such a, a sprawling archive and toward that end, let's let's dive into mm -hmm. a particular object. So we opened the this episode with an excerpt from a performance piece that you do built around a particular object. And this is a letter that your mother wrote while in college to mm -hmm. her friend Violet. So I wonder mm -hmm. for those who can just hear you. Um, right. Describe in detail. We're going to do a deep dive into this archival mm -hmm. object. Yeah. Um, describe the object, and then we'll get into its content, and then we'll talk about its meaning. But that, let's start yeah. with what is it? 
Right. So I think I should describe like how I found it. Oh, yes. So I I was in my grandmother's house. Uh, My grandmother lives in Queens and I'm in the basement and, you know, I'm cleaning out the house and I find a draw, like a dresser draw. that's like broken. It almost like falling apart and it's full of correspondence. So greeting cards, bridal shower invitations, et cetera. Right. And then there's a white envelope that has some folded pages in it. And the folded pages are sort of note, a small notebook size, right? The kind that you tear the page and it's like, you know, it's a little bit yellowed now and it has blue lines and it's written and some, sometimes the ink is black, sometimes the ink is blue because it's like a, <laughs> it's like a, maybe like a nine page back and front letter. And the first half, you know, she's, she's dressed to Violet and my mother had a boyfriend in college and they had moved in together. And so she was talking about just kind of those mundane things like going to an auction for the first time or something. Because she's from, she's from New York, you know, so like the country that she's learning in Ohio, right? And then is appendix number two. And she literally writes like appendix number two, which is to me is also interesting, right? This idea that you have a letter that has an appendix, right? Right. Like I said, the first half, it's not as politically charged, although there is a point where she talks about birth control and she warns her friend to watch out for the birth control because basically we don't know these white folks are still on birth control. So she's like, watch which one you're going to take. Right. And so the second half, like the clip we listened to, so basically she describes Dick Gregory coming to her campus. Dick Gregory, I learned later when doing research, he came to Ohio State a couple of times throughout the years. He was a sort of a frequent visitor to Ohio State. But this one time he comes in November of 1971 and she in her letter and the appendix to her letter, and I'm assuming it's an appendix because it wasn't, it's a, it was just a PS. And it's because it also is a PS at the end of the letter, right? Um, but she, she writes and her handwriting is like, it's not super clear, right? So you see some deciphering I'm doing, trying to see, you know, is that a T, is that an I, you know, is that a B? Um, it's in cursive, right? Um, and so, you know, but she writes about his visit and then she goes on because, and that, those pages are blue ink. That's like page maybe five, six, and seven. And then by page eight, it's in black ink and she's basically giving a play by play. So Kathleen Cleaver came to our campus. She talked about the split in the party. And then she's this play-by-play of all these. She's like, and it says like, dig, you know, like you dig, you know, so that's very time, timely. And it's like in North Korea, this is happening. And the Congo, this is happening. In Vietnam, this is happening, right? And she's kind of laying out all the geopolitical sort of things that are going on there. And then she sort of closes the letter with sort of like, tell everyone, tell everyone I said, hello, let me know how they're doing. And then she has her PS, you know? So, so the letter itself, I was completely drawn to the letter because one is a complete document. It has a beginning and it has an end and it covers a range of her personal experience, but also it's rich with the time. Like you can just, you feel like you're in 1971 by the words, her word choices, the things she's concerned about. The letter appears in the first exhibit and it's also going to appear in the Black August exhibit because she also talks about prisons. This is before the prison industrial complex is really sort of full and full steam. But she was doing some work in prisons as a college student in Ohio. And she talks about, you know, racial inequity and sentencing and this kind of thing. And even in drug, too, it's interesting, too. She talks about people getting hemmed up for like Rifa. And but whereas the mob is not doing that. And now here we are. We have like marijuana is legal. They, they have this question about what about all the pain, right? right. And injustice that we have right. experienced. Part of the reason why I was drawn to the letter is because the things that she's talking about in 1971 are still extremely relevant in 2021. They're not old. They're not out of date. These are still issues, right? And the passion and her conviction around these things 
are something that I share. And I think we also see that in our communities with people who are very much sort of organizing around, trying to educate around these questions of inequality and justice, you know, reproductive justice. Yeah, you know, I mean, could really, right. I mean, healthcare. Right. I mean, these are the kind of things that we're still very, very much dealing with right now. And so I think that's also something that I was drawn to. Learn. So it was, it was like, that was a no brainer. I was like, this is something that definitely folks need to, need to see. So you get this letter that's so rich in content. Tell us what kinds of things did you do to contextualize it? You know, right. you, you have a pretty good grasp of that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what, what were the, the steps you took to situate yeah. this letter, both in terms of your mother's life? Did you know who Violet was? Did you kind of mm-hmm. wonder who Violet mm-hmm. was? Did she show mm-hmm. up anywhere else in the archive? Mm-hmm. But also in terms of the broader stories that are told yeah. in the letter. So I think I'll say three things about that. So one, Violet, I definitely knew who she was because Violet and my mother are have been friends since they were 12. And it was interesting about this letter. And I sent a copy of it to Violet because my mother actually never mailed it. So she wrote the letter, but it was never actually mailed. Well, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's why you have it. <laughs> that's why I have it. Right. Exactly. Right. So, so, you know, Violet, they, like I said, they, they integrated their school, the junior high school together um, and stuff like that. So they, I've known her my whole entire life. And so I knew who she was and I knew they were very close, intimate friends. So that I knew. Um, when I see the Dick, Dick Gregory piece, you know, Dick Gregory is hilarious. I mean, it's like, like it's funny because I'm, I'm crying at the joke. She's retelling his jokes in the letter, right? Like 40 some odd years after the fact, and he's still funny. So the first thing I do, I'm like, oh, I want to see, like, can I, maybe I can find a newspaper clipping about him visiting, you know, the campus. But really the first complete thing I find is the FBI file, which is now, you know, online. And so Dick Gregory had been on investigation through COINTELPRO, right, the counterintelligence program under J. Edgar Hoover for many, many years. And so because of that, you know, they were the the federal government, the FBI, they were tracking and, and spying on him, basically, and following him around the country. His FBI file is like hundreds, almost thousands of pages long. So I went and I found the thing on Columbus, Ohio, and I'm tripping because I'm like, okay, so she said this and they said that. And so there are places where these things match up, but then there are significant places where they don't. Right. And one of the ones I'll just mention here is that this idea around basically the FBI said that Dick Gregory said call for a black boycott, economic boycott. When in fact, my mother says he says um, white folks and black folks should do it, which if you know anything about Dick Gregory makes more makes more, much more sense in terms of who he was um, as an activist. But what was important to me about that, and this is why I was in the first exhibit, was that my mother, a 21 year old black female student from Queens, Jamaica, New York, at, at school in Ohio State, would not be considered an authoritative source. The federal government would be, although they clearly have all kinds of biases. And not for nothing, but there's the, but the student newspaper, The Lantern, when they report on his visit, they coincide with Mother said, because he's like, you young people need to do X, Y, and Z. And Ohio State's not a black school. Right. <laughs> so, right. like, so, so he's clearly talking about a multiracial right, coalition to end the Vietnam War. But because the federal government um, was intent on silencing black resistance, black radical action, he, his work was interpreted as something that was a threat and it was dangerous. And that came out not, and I didn't know all that when I read the letter, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I knew about some of this about Dick Gregory, but I didn't know, and I knew about Quantelpro, but I didn't know how, like, how they all come together and how, I think one of the other things that was really um, significant for me in that kind of discovery of sorts is how when you think about your family, you think about a family archive, you think about things like a letter. 
and you think of things like photos. But you know, the reality is that there are federal documents that are also part of your family archive, right? And I'm I'm boying for my mother now, right? But you know what I mean? Like these that's also part of it, which is kind of yeah. chilling, but also important to sort of recognize. So I think in terms of that, that's kind of how that all came together for me. So I, I had like you said, I had a history, like I knew the broad outlines, I knew mm-hmm. about Phone Telepro, I knew who Dick Gregory was, and things like that. And so I went looking via Google, I got the FBI file, but then I went, I visited Ohio State University, I emailed the librarian, and I asked them some questions, and they were like, oh, the student newspapers are online, you can just look them up, you know? Wow. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so it was kind of like piece, you know, investigative, right? So you're piecing sort of things together. I, I love that it's almost like an archaeological you know, yes. you get these fragments <laughs> and you have to put the bones together and, and yeah. recreate the body of the story. Thinking about a letter, I hadn't even, I hadn't realized uh, the the implicit question of how did you end up with the letter that your mother wrote, but the fact that she didn't mail it. But that raises a question of intended audience, which I think a mm-hmm. lot of archivists or people who are archiving materials of, of individuals come across. And that question is the, the question of how do you navigate the balance between privacy and public engagement of mm-hmm. something that may have been intended for a specific person or a specific audience or sometimes the self, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you balance that desire to tell the story while maintaining that agency of the original mm-hmm. narrator, yeah. right? How did you weigh that in terms of what kinds of questions did you ask yourself when you decided like whether or not to include something? So for, to take this letter as an example, so you notice I say there's a first half and the second half, and I haven't talked a lot about the first half, right? That's intentional. Knowing my mother, who she was, she was a very open person. And particularly as she got older. So she was not someone who was afraid to share you know, even very personal things about her life. So on one level, I wasn't knowing who she was and knowing how she lived. I have very few apprehensions about sharing something from the archive because I feel like she would definitely also share it. However, there is like in the in the more personal or a part of the letter, I decided not to sort of focus on that per se because I felt like it was kind of personal, right? And so I wasn't, I'm not really sure yet what I want to do with that. So I mentioned the pregnancy scare, right? I mentioned that because I think, so there there are things that have a, that have a purchase and a value outside of just her experiencing with them that I think are important because we need to, we know about those things to make those connections. And then there are some things that are very personal that it's like, okay, well, I'm not sure. So if I'm not sure, so for me, I guess if I have questions that I'm not sure, I don't, right? Until I have certainty. When I have certainty is like, everything's super transparent. So that's kind of how I've been doing it. So I think it's been around who my mother was, what I think she would have been open to. Because even the first half of the letter, to be honest, I think she probably would have been okay with that, to be quite frank. But at the same time, I do feel like there needs to be some kind of ethical, measured way of dealing with those kinds of things, right? And so that's what, so with Al-Mujadila in particular, that's the space where I'm where I'm most challenged with that, but looking to do that because the thing about Mujadila is like, my mother experienced a lot of heartbreak in her relationships with the men as an adult. And to me, that's important to talk about because I think black women in general experience a lot of heartbreak in our society, both black society and border society is super dismissive of it. Like it doesn't matter, it's inconsequential. And maybe it was your fault, 
And I think it's really important to honor Black women's hearts and what they experience. And to honor, I say stories of love, right, heartbreak, and sisterhood, and to honor all the women who also have broken hearts, but who help each other and continue to build the world. So my mother had these relationships that didn't work out, but she also was a part of 28,000 organizations, right? She raised two kids. She, she educated, I don't know how many kids. Yeah. So she kept going. And so I think that's really important. And so there are things in there that are very personal that, again, Knowing my mother, I don't think she would have any qualms about people knowing about them. But you have, but there has to be a certain level of care that you do in sharing that stuff. One of the things I hear you saying is about the framing, how to frame certain stories so that they are interpreted in a way that you think is in the spirit of mm-hmm. of who your mother was. You know, that makes me think of what a lot of people who do museum work, who work with archivists or work with archives, or, or for me, like as an oral historian, a, a concept we call shared authority, which is this idea of like, once you start engaging a source, some scholars take ownership of the source and it's like theirs to do whatever they want with it, to tell whatever story they want to tell. And what I hear you is saying is more in the spirit of shared authority, where you are treating your mother's archive not just as a, a source of history, but as an interpretation of that history. And you are sitting with your and her interpretation and engaging each other. And so there's a there's a dialogic process here where you are in conversation, not just with the content of your mother's story, but you in, in conversation with her telling of that story. Because uh, there's a there's a sort of implicit telling that comes out of the saving, right? Um, right. When someone saves something, there that's that's part of a that's a storytelling act, right? Well, first of all, when they create the thing, right? Like whether it's a the creation can be the the saving of an object, like I'm keeping this flyer, or it could be actual production, like I'm taking this photograph, or I'm writing this letter. Those are acts of storytelling. It's so fascinating to hear you try to access or disclose the world that served as the reference point for all of these objects. And and so that brings me to but can this I say one question other, of- One other thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. Yes. So I was going to say, I think in addition to- I no, think, go ahead. So I think there's a there's both, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and that's really helpful for me to hear as well in terms of a kind of a shared authority. And also choices being made also because it's interpreting my mother's story, but also in the sense of knowing that her story is connected to other stories. So it's also like the people who are still alive who show up in this stuff, right? Who also mm-hmm. need to be considered in terms of like what's happening and how it's being shared and then also conferred to. So like, I, did, I didn't know my mother's college boyfriend, right? That was all before she became Muslim, all before I was born, but I found him. Right. <laughs> like I looked him up and I found him and I've talked to him and we've had conversations and he shared things with me, you know? Or like her friend, Auntie Karima. Like, you know, I was like, I've interviewed her. So it's also like, and these people that, Auntie Karima, I've known my whole entire life, but still, right? And you get these pieces of things and you're trying to figure out what to do with it or what it means. There are people who are still around who also can contribute. Violet, like I talked to Violet, right? Like, you know, as well. So I think that was also right, part of the process right. for me. You said something when you were talking about 
the letter of how, you know, your mother, here's this college student who would not typically be considered as the authoritative interpreter of Dick Gregory's visit versus, say, the FBI or even the college newspaper. I wonder if you can talk about what UMI's archive means as an intervention in creating a space of agency for a storyteller or a history teller like your mother specifically, or even more broadly, one of the things that I've encountered, and I think many people have encountered who study the history of Muslims in the United States, and certainly the history of Muslims of African descent in the United States, is that so many of those histories are leader-centered, they're male-centered. You know, we could probably run through the list of men who serve as the containers for whole community stories. And then when the question is asked, well, what about women's experiences? And one of the, the responses, which some of which is coming from a place of good faith and genuineness is, well, the archive is not there, right? So tell us, you know, what do you think, you know, work like yours of UMI's archive means for our understanding of Black women's histories, our understanding of Black Muslim women's histories, our understanding of Muslim women's histories, however you want to situate those circles. Okay, so in the project, I've defined archive as a reclaimed, a claimed space where we remember and dream. And I did so because the archive with a capital A, that's the kind of place where like everyday people with what we think we know about the past, right? That place has not concerned itself with or valued a lot of people's experiences. And most particularly, which is significant to me is people of African descent. And so that is something that needs to be rectified, right? And we rectify that by remembering. And I think people sometimes say, well, there is no archive. And it's a, that's just not true, right? Like there is, right? It's about where you're looking and what you're looking for and, and whether or not you're able to identify the story embedded in things like a receipt for an Arabic class. But it's also a place where we dream. And so I think about, there's some people like Sadia Hartman in particular, who whose work I've been acquainted with, who is thinking about archives in like speculative ways. So there are things that we don't know. So for example, in the archive, in the first exhibit, there are these two photos from my grandfather's time in World War II in Iran. They're in Ahwaz, which is a city. So what I've learned is that most Black men who served in World War II did not see combat. And they did sort of supply work. Um, and so he was a part of a, his regiment. They built supply roads to allied position. So they worked, one of the places they worked was the Persian corridor. So that's why he's in Iran. He's in Iran in Ahwaz in 1944. And he has this, the same picture twice with two different inscriptions. One inscription says trouble in the land, right? And the other inscription says social gathering. Now, I don't know, I actually don't know the sequence of this, but I'm imagining that perhaps his first evaluation of what happened at that moment was something that was maybe potentially somehow prejudiced, right? You know, or he's there for war. So there must be some, it was, it was a commotion. And then after some time and some nuance and some intimacy and some relationships, because he has other photos, right? Where he talks about, this is my friend and this kind of thing with people who are local to um, the parts of Iran he was in, it's a social gathering. It's not some dangerous thing. So that's speculation, that's imagining. Um, but also imagining in the sense that what we learn, the knowledge that is in this family archive, the knowledge that are in the things that my mother chose to save, 
that her father chose to notate, that her mother chose to say, the knowledge that's embedded in those things are also resources for us to dream and to imagine and to build a better future, right? Because they were all committed to that. And my mother in particular, I didn't know my grandfather, um, but obviously he raised her, so he had some impact on her. But my, but my mother in particular was very, very much committed to building a better world. And so this is the intervention that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to say that that thing on your grandma's shelf, that you need to talk to her about it and find out what's going on with it because it has knowledge. It has things we need to know that can help us now and into the future. So that's, that's the intervention I'm trying to make. I love that. Thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful conversation. Before we go, we like to include in all of our episodes a fun question. This is our on the square question. What is your Black Muslim theme song? Or if Black Islam had a theme song, what would it be? So since we're in Ramadan, I think the first song that comes to mind for me as my Black Muslim theme song is Shahada by Suad el and the reason why I'm choosing it, so Shahada, so Suwailamin is, an, you know, she's a pioneer in the community and she has the song that I grew up listening to called Shahada. And it's like this R&B kind of bluesy song that is all about um, being Muslim, like Shahada. And there's a point in the song, like towards the end, where she's like, stand up and be counted among the righteous. And every time I hear that, it's like, it still gives me chills, right? And it's like, and I love the song because it's culturally, it's mine. It's, it's a good song. It's not one of these whackable songs, right? <laughs> but also she's, you know, Stand Up and Count It is like, you know, something that people would say all the time growing up because it's Shahada's being a witness, right? So Stand Up and Be Counted. It's the Ramadan edition. My Black Muslim theme song is Shahada by Suad al All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir, for joining us. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of On the Square, Real Talk on Race and Islam in the Americas, a special podcast series brought to you by Sapelo Square and the Maidan. Thanks to our guest again, Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir. You can find more information about what we discussed, including links and more by visiting sapelosquare.com forward slash on the square or themaidan.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music was created by Fanatic on Beats. <laughs>